Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello fellow time travellers, great to have you with me for yet another journey through space and time. Thanks first of all to everyone who's signed up to my Patreon site. If you don't know about Patreon, uh, you go there and you pay to become a member of a family, I suppose, a community. You part with a bit of cash, either on a, a, a monthly or an annual basis, and you become part of my, my Patreon family. Uh, it's a it's a place of free thinkers, people who are curious about history, people like myself who want answers to all sorts of questions about the world in which we live today and go into the past in search of that information. Uh, if you go to patreon.com, search for me by name, Neil Oliver, uh, and sign up and join up, then you get behind the velvet rope, you might say, and you become part of our exclusive club, a club which is growing larger all the time. Uh, you get uh, exclusive vodcasts every week, competitions, the potential for viewers to suggest topics for vodcasts, and Paul and I will be getting to work on some of them shortly. Come along, go to Patreon, find me, become part of the family, the more the merrier. Okay, it's now time to strap ourselves into the time machine for the next episode of my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. combing blood and gore out of their long hair. So violent was the face-to-face butchery and slaughter. Persian power and influence growing, dwarfing any empire that had gone before. In its sights, the city-states of ancient Greece sat or squatted like frogs around the rim of a pond. The largest army ever assembled is on the move and coming their way. But in their path is a band of Sparta's elite warriors. Facing overwhelming odds, these fabled heroes stood their ground and strode into the history books as the legendary 300. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Daniel, in the last episode we travelled with you to ancient Rome to see some of the first shoots of democracy taking hold. Where are we heading this week? Hello again Paul. As the Roman Empire starts its incredible rise, uh, we're hopping over the Ionian Sea to Greece uh, as those Greeks face an imminent and powerful threat. We're off to stand shoulder to shoulder with King Leonidas and some of the greatest warriors who ever lived. We're at Thermopylae in what goes down for me as the most iconic last stand of them all. Paul, we're in the territory of uh, the Battle of Thermopylae, the one which many people of a certain age will remember having seen depicted in the film 300, uh, starring uh, 
a Scottish actor, Gerard Butler. He'd never looked so good before, and I don't think he's ever looked so good again. That was the, the story of the, the 300 hoplites handpicked by King Leonidas of Sparta. Uh, it's a great, it's a great movie. So we're there. We'll, we will come. We will, we will, uh, we will reach a climax at the Battle of Thermopylae. Uh, but I suppose we should have a bit of a preamble before we quite get there. Uh, it, relatively recently in the story of the world, in a hundred moments, we've dealt with the fall of Babylon, which was, it's almost interchangeable, I suppose, with Mesopotamia, the land between the rivers, in the middle of the first millennium BC. And it falls, having having been pivotal, having having mattered in the story of the world for century after century after century, when Babylon falls in the middle of the first millennium BC, it never matters in the same way again. And it's a, it's a turning point. In that moment, Persia, or what becomes the, the Persian Empire, sparks into life there, a little light from which something much brighter will grow. You could say that in the ways that matter, that final fall of Babylon and the rise of Persia is the halfway mark in the story of the world. It's like it's a turning point and a, and a halfway. I'm fascinated by the way in which we conceptualise time. Obviously, when we're thinking about a story of the world, time is what it's all about. I'm very interested in the in the perspectives that we have on time and, and kind of the, the, the vantage point from which we consider time. I was blown away whenever it was I first heard it by the fact that Cleopatra, Queen of Egypt, is closer to our time in the 21st century, chronologically speaking, than she was to the builders of the temple at Karnak. And and it was Egyptians that built the temple at Karnak. And, and Cleopatra went to Karnak. But she's closer to our time than to the builders of Karnak. I, I, that, that blows my mind. In much the same way that Tyrannosaurus Rex is closer to our time and us than he is to Stegosaurus. Wow. In fact, I was talking I was talking to my daughter just the other day, and she she came up with a variation on something the like of which I've heard before, but it was a particularly good uh, example. She was saying that relatively recently when, when astronomers identified a planet out there in the cosmos that was quite like Earth you know, in terms of it, the possibility of it being able to support life in the same way that Earth does. They're just right. You know, it's like Goldilocks and the porridge, you know, not too warm, not too cold. It's that, that kind of scenario. Well, so they identified this this planet, but so far away is it that if, there, if you could go there now, this instant, and look at Earth, the light that that version of Earth would be bathed in, if you like, would be seeing, would have dinosaurs still alive on Earth. If you could go there now and look back here at Earth, there'd be dinosaurs, or the, the light you would get would be carrying images of dinosaurs. I love I love all of that stuff. So, you know, it's, it's this idea that the the fall of Babylon, the rise of Persia, you can, if you if you're open minded about it and allow your imagination to wander, you can make it the halfway mark in the story of of the world. And, I mean, by that point, civilization on planet Earth was already three thousand years old. Uh, civilization, however you, whatever you think civilization is, 
and there's a, a generally accepted idea of what civilization is. And I, and I think without necessarily being able to put it into words, we all kind of instinctively understand what civilization is. Well, something like that was in the Middle East, obviously. It was in Egyptian Africa. It was in India. It was in China. It was elsewhere. And the civilization in each of these places hadn't depended necessarily on civilization arriving like a windblown seed from any of the others. Civilization kind of was kindled into being spontaneously and independently and was different as a result, but, but had about it the stuff of civilization. How do you define civilization? I think you'd I think you would have to allow for um, people finding ways to live together in quite large numbers and cooperatively. So that rather than everyone just existing like a little individual hunter and their children and maybe a bit of their extended family operating independently from any other little family or clan. I think where you've got enough people finding an understanding and living and working collaboratively so that each person doesn't have to spend all of his time making sure there's food to eat that night and a fire to, to be warmed by and some shelter. If that's been taken care of by those who specialise in those elements, and it frees other people up to do other things, like write, or invent, or to make beautiful jewellery, or to create wonderful sculpture. Once people are freed up and can specialise in certain knowledge that other people are providing food and defending the walls of the town and so on and so on, I think, I think there or thereabouts you've got something that smells a bit like civilization. It's tricky, isn't it? It is, it is. It is tricky. I mean, so I suppose other people would have different ideas of what civilization is. I mean, civilization, you tend to think that it means that everyone's being taken well care of. And of course, in the ancient civilizations that we're talking about, it's not the case. In most cases, most of the grunt work was being done in those civilizations by slaves. You know, people who'd been taken against their will and were being held captive and, and forced to work for the rest of their lives. Women being forced to have children, whether or not they wanted to. And yet that's still under the umbrella of civilization. So if you think that a civilized uh, place would be everyone living a nice life, no, it's just not. But we, but we still call those, you know, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, ancient Mesopotamia, we call it civilization. But for most people, most of the time, their lives were, you know, nasty, brutish and short. It was only ever an elite that, that had anything approaching a nice life. And even at that, the good life of the of the elites of 3,000 years ago would probably not be satisfactory to us. For a start, you're not necessarily going to have flushing toilets and access to dentists or pain-killing pain -killing medicine. You know, so civilization, it's a, it's, a hard, it's a hard target to hit. So, so anyway, here we are. Uh, Babylon is gone. That civilization has been eclipsed, and Persia is on the rise. And, and and around that time, of course, other things are going on simultaneously. Uh, and, and so, by the middle of the first millennium BC, the Mediterranean Sea has become a, what would you say, like a, a unifying entity. It has a, a gravitational pull, you might say, that's holding people in place. You know, rather than them scattering, they're, they're held around a, a narrow band of territory around the outside edge of the, of the Mediterranean Sea. 
And at this point, let's be vague about it, just give ourselves a break. Around the middle of the first millennium BC, they're speaking Greek and then Latin, more or less. Language is a, unif- is a great unifier. If people can speak to one another in a common tongue, that fosters a sense of togetherness, doesn't it? You, you tend to look differently and perhaps more in a more friendly way upon those with whom you can speak than those with whom you can't because the language is different. So they were united to some extent, whether but even if they weren't racially or by blood, they were united by language. And the sea itself, because people at that point had ships of sail um, and oars, they could move around the Mediterranean Sea, taking advantage of and understanding the prevailing winds, doing a bit of rowing when, when necessary, so they could range widely. That enabled trade and the exchange of ideas the Mediterranean Sea became a bit like a roundabout, on ramps and off ramps, if you like, to get to where they needed it to be. By that point, ancient Egypt, Egypt which had mattered in the story of the world for a long time, was was failing and falling. It was never going to be the same again after, you know, around the middle of the first millennium BC. Egypt had been captured, well captured, it was being dominated by Nebuchadnezzar the year before he sacked Jerusalem. You know, so 588, uh, 7 BC, Nebuchadnezzar was, was fairly making his mark. And from that point on, there or thereabouts, Egypt, the ancient Egypt that we think about, from that point until it ceased to matter, uh, was ruled by outsiders. It was never indigenous Egyptians sitting on the throne of Egypt. Never again. They were, they were ruled from the outside. Two peoples, the Medes and the Achaemenids, were tribes, neighbouring associated tribes, originally from territory that we would understand today as Iran. Uh, And they were rubbing along together. But right in the middle of that first millennium BC, there's a, a king, Cyrus. Now, we've already encountered Cyrus. He it was who drove off the last king of Babylon, Nabonidus, uh, and then and freed the Hebrews. You know, sent them. That was the end of their Babylonian exile, and they were they, you know they were free to return to the promised land. Cyrus united. He swallowed up the Medes, or, or brought them together with his own tribe, uh, and that was the that was the spark of Persia, and the empire which he then set in place grew faster, and subsequently dwarfed, geographically speaking, anything that had ever existed before. And the successful model, the business plan, if you like, of of Cyrus and the Persians was subsequently consciously or unconsciously followed by Rome, which is to say he would conquer a a people in a territory. But then having done that, all he demanded was that they pay him off in gold, you know, and keep paying him, you know, kind of taxation, and that they acknowledged him as the paramount king. Other than that, he let them get on with life as before. So whatever it was that they were, what gods they were worshiping, you know, what their, their dietary habits, the clothes they wore, whatever, that was allowed to carry on largely unmolested. And the Romans were successful by exploiting the same technique. He also, Cyrus, also swallowed up Egypt. After Cyrus, you know, Cyrus lived out his life, came and went, died and buried. He had been a, a, a very powerful gravitational force that had held that empire together. And when he was gone, there was some fragmentation. It, 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 his empire began to, to break and cracks and fissures appeared in it. 
a few generations later came Darius, Darius of the Persians, and he was as great. And under under Darius, the Persian Empire reached from uh, Macedonia, just like Turkey, in the west, all the way to the Indus Valley, India in the east. Colossal by, by the standards of the day, and it swallowed up all sorts of different peoples were within that, that empire. So you had Babylonians, you got Hebrews, uh, Indians, obviously. And the Indians were, a, were an incredible mix of different peoples. They didn't recognize themselves as Indians. Uh, Lydians, Medes, Phoenicians, all under the umbrella of the of that Persian Empire. And, and at the same time, you've also got, actually from around 1000 BC, from then on, there's Greeks. Greek is the language. They called themselves Hellenes. They're on Crete. Uh, they're all over the Aegean Sea on the islands, uh, the Peloponnese. They're on the Greek mainland. And they are, as we've previously discussed, that, that civilization was made possible by the olive and the grape, two crops that would grow on difficult terrain where wheat and barley would fail. Uh, there was great wealth was made possible by the olive and the grape. And that, in turn, you wouldn't have had the Greek civilization without those two crops. So by 500 BC, the ways of the Hellenes were all around the Med, all around the Mediterranean, it spread as far as the Black Sea. Interestingly, a little takeaway fact, they, you know, because they were united by Greek, because these people were all speaking the same language, anyone from outside, as far as they were concerned, made a noise like sort of bar, 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 barbarians. Barbarians were to the Hellenes anyone from the outside who didn't speak Greek. And they were to be treated, therefore, to some extent, with some kind of contempt. As far as the Hellenes were concerned, if you didn't speak Greek, there was something wrong with you. And you were certainly less civilised than, than they were. By that point, they had internalised a mythic past that had been created, or at the very least written down for them by the great poet Homer. So they had had described for them by Homer a whole pantheon of gods, so they had a, a rich understanding of themselves, the Hellenes, the Greeks. For a long time, power and influence rested on landowning. You know, if you owned big farms and could grow the crops, there was, there was leverage and, and power and influence that came from that. So they were the aristocrats. Of course, again, all the heavy work was being done by slaves. They allowed in uh, to begin with, or they tolerated the presence of foreigners who were uh, in the world of commerce, traders. They called them metics. And the, uh, those aristocratic landowning figureheads looked down on trade and commerce. They looked down on the metics. They tolerated them, but they thought they were lowly. They didn't invest with any value socially, that trade that those individuals were involved in. But subtly and slowly, that situation changed. From about 500 BC onwards, those, those metics kind of infected others in the same time, so that the, the, the indigenous, some of the indigenous people as well, started to realise the potential of trade. And they grew rich building up reserves of silver. And with the spare, they became wealthy. They could pay for private armies. They could arm themselves and they could gather armed men around them. That became the real source of power. So rather, so they, they, they were in a position to uh, supplant 
the landowning aristocrats because greater wealth and therefore greater influence, greater power was made possible by men who had new money. It's a bourgeoisie, people who had, who had grown wealth through trade rather than just inheriting their father's estates became more uh, more significant. So you've got these guys and they're, they're, uh, they're, they're training and maintaining and arming private armies. And this is the origin of the hoplites. Mentioned them in the context of Leonidas and Sparta, the hoplites, the 300. And the word comes from hopla, which is the stuff of war. So the hoplites were literally the people who were in armour and carrying spears and shields. They were hoplites because they carried the stuff of war. In Homer's works, the Iliad and the Odyssey, the fighting was all about single combat. You know, figures like Achilles and Hector taking on adversaries, mano a mano. The change with the private armies was, was that understanding that no Hector, no Achilles was going to be able to stand against 10,000 men, all dressed alike, all armed alike, all trained, all drilled, and all able to work in concert, carefully choreographed movements that were the product of practice and drill. Really the, the advent of the kind of armies that we understand even today, armed differently, obviously, but that idea of all coming together and fighting as one. It also fostered the rise of the city-states, uh, these individual cities uh, wherein the people came together to make their own decisions. You know, the, the people decided, or the men, uh, men of influence within those cities came together to decide how the city should be run. It's the very early stages of what becomes democracy. But those city-states were independent from one another. So they, there wasn't a, a Greece. There were, there were many, many different city-states. We know more about Athens and Sparta than we know about any of the others. There were hundreds of, of independent city-states and they all, we think, or it would, would appear, had slightly different ideas of how to run their affairs. It was the time of the rise of what were known, a word that was coined then, the tyrants. Tyrant has a pejorative tone about it now, but in the beginning, it meant really people who had pulled together enough personal wealth enough new money from trade to have the power to subvert the hereditary rulers uh, and they were known as tyrants and it became a word with, with negative associations but not to begin with. You places like Athens and Sparta and the rest of the city-states were, you, know, you could say, fledgling democracies where some of the people within those city-states were making the necessary decisions. There were also the Etruscans, we've touched on them before, we talked about the last king of Rome, uh, but there's Etruscans in, in the middle of the Italian peninsula who are also a, a, a related civilization, speaking Latin. At the same time, there's the Punic people in Carthage, which is uh, Tunisia in North Africa. Carthage was a city-state that was descended from the Phoenicians, the Phoenicians that had been the great traders coming out of the eastern Mediterranean, the great craftsmen who were brought in by Solomon to build the first temple. So, so they left behind a civilization that by this point in the middle of the first millennium BC was Punic. So you've got all of this going on and it's, it's all uh, around, it's all spread around the Mediterranean, North Africa providing the, the southern coastline and then to the north and to the west and the east, there's the rest of the Mediterranean. All, all these places that are slightly different, but all held together by language. It was Plato, you know, you've got Socrates, Plato, then Aristotle, which Plato, the philosopher who described it as 
he described th- those city-states as being like frogs round the rim of a pond, each one sort of croaking its own song, not identical to one another, but similar, and, and understanding themselves similarly. Well, all of this going on around the Mediterranean, Persians in the north, after Cyrus and with Darius, they're flexing their muscles down towards where the Hellenes are in the Greek mainland, in the Peloponnese, all across the Aegean. And those Greeks, let's call them Greeks, became nervous of and suspicious of what the Persians were doing in the north and eventually took them on. Athens raised an army and fought off the Persians at the legendary Battle of Marathon in 490 BC. Pushed them back, you know, pushed the, pushed the Persians back. You've got a lot of flexing for power going on. The year before, the year before Marathon, Darius had sent emissaries all over the Greek world demanding tribute in the form of water and soil from, from the various territories. You know, if you were prepared to as it were, recognised the superiority and the dominance of Persia, you gave up some soil and some water from the homeland as a demonstration of that willingness to obey. Well, the the, the emissaries turned up at Sparta and the Spartans told them to go and get it for themselves and flung them down a well, killing them. Something similar happened to the Persian emissaries that went to Athens. So battle lines were drawn at that point, 490, 491 BC. There's something has been set in train there. By 480 BC, Darius was dead. He'd come to the end of his life, but he was succeeded by his own son, Xerxes. Anyone who's seen the 300 knows how Xerxes was portrayed in the 300, like a kind of a monster, like a a giant, superhuman-sized figure. But Xerxes was the king of the Persians, paramount king as far as he was concerned, king of kings. He, even more ambitious than Cyrus, even more ambitious than Darius, invaded the Greek territory. Herodotus, fanciful, hyperbolic Herodotus, the father of all historians, described that Persian force as numbering five million strong, which there's simply no way, there's simply no way that it was a force on that scale, but he was was just using that number to get across the message that it was a force the like of which no one had ever confronted or been confronted by. More recently, estimates of its actual size vary between 80,000, maybe as high as 200,000. In any event, a colossal force. Such was Xerxes' ambition that he had his engineers build a mile and a half long bridge across the Hellespont, a stretch of water. More familiar, perhaps, is the Dardanelles, Gallipoli and all of that. That's all happening in that part of the world where there's that First World War disaster for the Australians and and so on. But So Xerxes had his engineers build a mile and a half of bridge across the, the narrows there, moved his army across into the territory and then headed south to go after Sparta and to go after Athens, those city-states that had so humiliatingly and with great audacity had defied his father. So that that, that great that great force is on the move, and here we come to the moment the moment of moments, the moment in the story of the world. Sparta, uniquely in terms of the city states, as far as we can tell, was run by a pair of kings. Not one king, but two. Leonidas was one of them, and Leonidas led a force away from the city to tackle to try and hold up the Persian advance. Now he, of course, understood his own territory. He knew his landscape. 
and he took his force to a place where he knew that the path, the only way through the landscape was very narrow. It was pinched by steep mountains on the landward side and the sea on the other side. And at, at, at three distinct points quite close together, the way was so narrow that it was difficult even for two wagons to pass. Close by these narrows were hot springs, hot water, like bath, like hot water bubbling up out of the ground. In Greek, these narrow passes with hot water nearby were called thermopylae, the hot gates. And he knew, Leonidas knew that with a relatively small force, he could block the way. No matter if you've got 200,000 or indeed 5 million men, if, if your front is only a, a few men wide, there's only so much you can do. And, and, and unequally matched forces, the size wouldn't necessarily confer an instant advantage. So he, he got his men into position at Thermopylae. 4,000 fighting men in total. Uh, but at the core of it, 300 hand-picked hot plates, hand-picked warriors trained from boyhood, from childhood, practicing only the ways of war. Spartan men only trained as soldiers, nothing else. They kept a, an enslaved population called helots who did all the farming, did all the cleaning, did all the menial tasks as far as the Spartans were concerned. And the Spartans themselves, the men trained for war. Uh, they were, it was a, well, Spartan has come down to us as suggestive of a tough life. And it was, they, they, they aspired to strength strength and endurance above all else. Women, Spartan women, enjoyed unusual freedoms by the standards of that ancient world. Uh, and it, un Spartan women, their only responsibility on this earth was to give birth to more boys. Some girls along the way, for sure, but they wanted men, men to be trained as soldiers. And in Spartan society, you would only receive a gravestone on your death. If you were a man who had died in battle, fighting, or a woman who had died in childbirth. Only those examples of, of Spartan humanity went into the ground topped off with a gravestone, and it didn't carry their names, it just carried two words, in war. So the men had died in battle, and the women dying in childbirth had died fighting a noble fight of their own. So it's a t tough place and tough people. So 4,000 men that Leonidas led to, to Thermopylae and the hard core of it, these 300 hot plates of the kind we're just discussing. The message that the women always gave to their men, to their, to their husbands, to their, uh, to their sons, was come back carrying your shield or on it, i.e. you're only allowed back if you're victorious and you're carrying your shield or if you've died fighting and your comrades will bring you back on your shield like a stretcher. It's a tough place. So there they are. Leonidas has his, has his diminutive force lined up against the Persians and for two days they're able to hold the Persians at bay. The Spartans, apparently, the men wore their hair long. They fought naked. Gymnos, from which we get gymnastics. Stripped down to almost nothing. And they wore their hair long. The men wore their hair long. And apparently in breaks in the fighting, they were combing blood and gore out of their long hair. So violent was the face-to-face -face butchery and slaughter. So this goes on for a couple of days. And then the Spartans are betrayed. There's a local farmer, Ephialtes, who goes to the Persians and reveals to them a hitherto unknown pass through the mountains that meant that Xerxes was able to send a large force of his Persians to outflank Leonidas and his forces. So on the morning of the third day of the Battle of Thermopylae, 
the Spartans wake up realising and Leonidas realising that they're now in a hopeless situation. They've got Persians in front of them, but they've also got Persians behind them. Realising that effectively all is lost, Leonidas sends away the bulk of his force. In fact, he sends away everyone to fight another day apart from the 300. He keeps the 300 hoplites back. The Persians send emissaries to taunt the Spartans and they say that we're bringing archers, we're bringing so many bowmen that when they put their arrows into the air, it'll block out the sun. And one of the Spartans, Dionysus, apparently shouts back, good news, at least we'll be fighting in the shade. And the fighting ensues, and sure enough, uh, at great cost to the Persians, but the Spartans are killed to the last man. Leonidas is killed in the fighting. His body's dragged away by the Persians and subsequently decapitated, and he's, he's, Leonidas' his head is held up on a spear as a symbol of victory. And the point is, although every last one of them dies, they've bought time for Athens. The allied city-state of Athens has had time, extra time, to prepare. And there's an encounter subsequently between the Persians and the Athenians. It's a naval battle called Salamis, and the Persian fleet is scattered. They're, de they're defeated and driven off. The following year, because the fighting season is over, Xerxes sends an army back in, and there they're defeated, completely smashed at a, a land a land battle called Plataea, and the Persians are driven out of Greece, never to return. This is the moment. It's Thermopylae that is the act of defiance, the legendary act. It enables Salamis and Plataea, and Plataea evicts the Persians from Greece. And that is the seedbed in that victory that produces the Greece we all think we know about. It was the confidence and the glory that came out of that victory in what's remembered as the Persian War that lit a fire under Greece. And the, the Greeks understood themselves to be people who mattered. Every man and every woman and every child from that point on was reared and raised to understand that they, as Greeks, as Hellenes, were something special. And so they were. And for the last two and a half thousand years, other men and other women have looked back at that Greece, born of Thermopylae, born of Salamis and Plataea, and wished that it was them. For two and a half thousand years, the Western world has looked back at them and that place and that civilization and dreamt of getting back to it like some perfect Eden. It wasn't the it wasn't the last time by any stretch that East would fight West, that Asia would fight Europe. But it's probably the first. I get the impression there's something about last stands that really touched you. There is. I've written about it in the past. I wrote a book a few years ago called um, Amazing Tales for Making Men Out of Boys. And in large part, it often came down to last stands, either as armies or as individuals, people who just go all the way. Because ever since I was a little boy, I've wondered how I would behave in that situation. I've never been to war. I don't ever intend to go to war. I hope none of my sons ever have to go to war. But I've wondered, because until you're in that situation... By which I mean you're back to the wall. You're not going to get out. 
all these people down through history found themselves in a situation they knew they weren't going to survive. He, this is it. I'm going to die. What do you do? Do you curl up in a ball on the floor and shout for your mum? Or do you stand up and fight to the last breath? And you're never going to know until you're cast into that cauldron. You won't know. And so when I look back at tales of last stands, I'm always fascinated because those individuals were tested in that way. And before they died, they got their answer. One way or another, each one of them learned if he was a curl-up-in-a-ball person or a stand-up-and-fight person. And the, the test of it enthralls me. A cup of deadly poison, an execution, facing his fate calmly and without complaint. He left no writings of his own, but an influence on philosophy greater than anyone else. Scrutiny of morality and ethics, reason, intelligence and analysis. He was an irritant, a self-professed gadfly who would always stand alone rather than comply with what he knew to be wrong. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It would be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it, get them listening, and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music's composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finances by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios. And the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been an FBF Podcasts production.